No one had ever asked me, did you know that you don't have to diet ever again? I had never thought of that before. And the idea of dieting not being part of my life, the idea that other people did it, that it was available to me had never occurred to me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. I'm Christina Safran, and today I am joined by Virgie Tovar. I'm so excited about this. She's a writer, activist, and really a leading expert on weight-based discrimination and body image. She's the creator of the popular hashtag Lose Hate Not Weight and the author of the incredible book You Have the Right to Remain Fat. If you haven't read it, run to buy it immediately. Uh, Virgie is also a regular contributor to Forbes magazine, writing about plus size fashion and size inclusiveness in the clothing industry and the workplace. Super important topics. Uh, Virgie has lived experience with an eating disorder and recovery. She's navigated these waters as a large-bodied person of color and uses her perspective to educate others and help improve health outcomes for all. Virgie believes that weight discrimination is a human rights issue and dedicates her activism to this message. I am so excited for you to listen in as Virgie and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Virgie. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> um, we're going to have a really fun conversation. Yes. Take me back to the beginning. How did this all begin? What was your experience like coming to the realization that you had an eating disorder? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm still coming to it, frankly. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I think back on when I was introduced to fat activism or fat positivity or anti-diet, right? These were all things that I heard them and I immediately adopted them. When it's come to eating disorders, it's like this super slow process of kind of like waves of awareness and waves of dawning like, yep, that's what that is, right? Because I think, and and I want to talk about the challenges and why I think it's been so slow and why it was like so easy to adopt those other things and not this, right? I think- yeah. Wait, can I pause you for a second, though? Because I hear you say, I heard about fat activism and I adopted it immediately. Was that the case? Because that's not necessarily typical, which I think we'll get into for everybody. I think people have a longer journey. Um, So I just wanted to double click on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that you stopped that. that, Like, I love that you paused there because, yeah, I was one of those people who, uh, you know, I really think, and, and, to, and mind you, right, like I had seen examples of w- fat women who were embracing their bodies individually and been deeply threatened by them before that point. But once I was introduced to kind of fat activism as an ideology within a community setting, like a, in my case, it was a conference, it was like, it really felt like come to Jesus. It really felt like some kind of religious conversion. Like, oh my God, I'm ready to like, I mean, not to use too much religious like um, <laughs> imagery, but like, I was like, I'm ready to lay my burn down. I'm done. Like, I'm done doing this. So I think that it was, so it, it felt very much like that moment of kind of instantaneous conversion, if you will, with some of those things. I mean, honestly, I was like, oh my, like no one had ever asked me, did you know that you don't have to diet ever again? I think that was the big, it was all mixed up in that pitch of like fat activism, fat positivity. You don't have to diet. And I think like I had never thought of that before. 
And the idea of dieting not being part of my life, the idea that other people did it, that it was available to me had never occurred to me. And so I think that it really felt like I'm so done with this and to have the key to learn, you know, kind of, I mean, like I've been in, for example, like I was in a really psychologically abusive relationship and like, you know, when you're in a bad relationship, whether it's with an entity like diet culture or the person, sometimes you really want to get out, but you don't, you literally don't know how to get out. You're like, okay, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I don't know how to walk out the door. You know, and I feel like for meeting them, it was like, oh, I can just walk out the door. Like that had not occurred to me. That's a really helpful reframe. Okay, so so why was re- coming into the journey of eating disorder recovery and naming, oh, what I have was an eating disorder? Why was that harder? Yeah, it feels. I think honestly, it really comes down to being fat and being a person of color. Like really, kind of like never having that medical moment. Never like knowing that even if I went in today and Scott screen that there's a really good chance that I wouldn't, you know what I, I think there it's that it's, it's like, I'm someone who has a big critique of the medical field and how it treats eating disorders and how it treats people in larger bodies and women, et cetera. But I think that there is something about it where I'm just like, no, it's not bad enough. It, no, it's not quite there. No, like, yeah, you dieted, but it was. So, yeah, I, I frankly think there's a little bit of that internalized narrative that fat people can't have anorexia, which yeah. is basically what I was grappling with, um, like a pretty severe uh, restrictive, you know, eating disorder. And so I think there's definitely that. And I think also there's. Something to be said about like that was not the prevalent language that was used to talk about our experiences when I when I was introduced to fat activism and all of these people who were really aware. Like we all basically had eating disorders, um, and yet we didn't use that language. We used the language of dieting and diet culture, I, and I think some of it really was just that same phenomenon. We didn't have that lexicon because we didn't see ourselves in that in that cultural archetype at all. It was almost like a step too much to just so many years, even like even more ingrained, totally connected to, but almost even more ingrained than the internalized fat phobia of like, of course this couldn't be me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's like, I think coming, I'm still coming into it and realizing, right, like, okay, yeah, I come, not only do I have an eating disorder, I come from a multi-generational disordered eating family. I learned some of my eating disorder behavior from my mother, from my grandmother, you know, from my grandfather, uh, you know, like, and I I was, I've really been thinking about the genealogy of my relationship to food and really how it came to be in my home. Like, like I have a grandfather who was called fat every day of his life as a child. He didn't even have, you know, he really talked about like how he didn't have an identity. His first name was Jorge and he didn't have, that wasn't his name. His name was Gordo, which is fat. Um, That was his name. And then he talks about his decision to basically become a competitive bodybuilder as a way to cope with that phobia. So he develops like orthorexia, right, basically as a way to deal with it. And he experiences orthorexia as empowerment, as winning, you know, over the bullies and over his body and all of this stuff. And he proceeded to like, you know, really was, you know, lifted weights pretty much daily until the pretty much the day that he died, you know, and I think on the one hand, it was very 
it was a source of pride for him to sort of be someone who was like physically fit and strong even into his 70s. But obviously, it's all mixed up in this like really intense sort of relationship to food and body. My mother, I remember, you know, she was always an advocate of mine and loved me a lot. And I didn't inter- I did not learn fat phobia from her. But once fat phobia started to get unmanageable, where she she literally had run out of tips and tools and didn't know what else to tell me after you know just being t- me being tortured day in and day out. That finally one day I could tell she had kind of given up and she was like, "All right, I'm going to teach you bulimia then." this is how we're going to do that. You know, like literally she, she taught me, you know, she was like the key to losing weight is to learn to hate the foods that you love. Um, and she just talked about systematically basically binging and purging with each food that she loved, like made a list and then did that, you know, pretty systematically. Um, and was in a relationship with my father, my birth father, who really enabled that and really encouraged that. And then I think about my grandmother, who is a lifelong restrictor. And, you know, she taught me things like make sure that clothes are always too tight. Like always make sure that you're contained and discomfort as a sign that as, as like a normal part of life. And then also when you start to eat, quote unquote, eat so much that the food start that the clothes starts to get really uncomfortable, then you know you have to start restricting more than usual. Wow. Um, so like that's the home that's how you grew that up. I grew up. Yeah, grew up in and and that the phrase eating disorder and like none of it. That was not anything that any of us like again as an immigrant family, as people of color, as fat people, that was not even that was just life. That's just life when you're living in the in those identities, I think, in the US. I think it's such a common story that nobody really talks about how these things are normalized in these communities and go yeah. kind of under the radar. I'm curious how as you've kind of come into your own evolution with fat acceptance, eating disorder recovery, like how has that played out in your family for those who are still with us? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I have no contact with my family now, not because of um, necessarily stuff around body and weight and food, though I will say, you know, basically going anti-diet and reconnecting to my body made it kind of unbearable to be around my family because of all the trauma and the unresolved stuff outside of even, I mean, obviously you can't, you can't exactly separate all the trauma from like the disordered eating. But I think for me, if it had maybe just been that, um, I might've been able to grapple with that, but it was a lot more than that. But I've been doing this work for way longer than, than I've, than I've been no contact. And I think on the one hand, like my mother and grandmother, my mother in particular, I think felt really inspired by it. But I think like a lot of people, it's like, it just feels like it's not for them. It's like, I I love it and I'm inspired, but I'm not strong enough, but I'm not the kind of person who can do that. Mm. But I, you know, like that kind of narrative um, yeah. where uh, it just felt like it didn't feel accessible to them for, for reasons, some reasons I understand and some reasons I don't. I think sometimes a lot of people, once they get to a certain age, they're sort of like, this is how it is, you know? Um, But that's so sad that she could, I mean, I'm so glad that she could see the like joy and celebration and how this was such a better way to live for you. But it, it does highlight how, you know, just heartbreaking that is that she didn't feel like she could get there for herself. I know. And I mean, I think a lot of her, I think a lot of my mother and grandmother's narrative, and I think this is a very common narrative for women, like people who are socialized female, it's like, there's a point at which you kind of retire 
from like being a person or being a woman or have doing things that matter to you. I mean, I feel like for my mother and grandmother, they retired at like 29 or 30. It was like, life is just kind of over. I'm just here in service to others. This is not about my journey anymore. And that, that was the narrative that, you know, I saw growing up that you, that you sort of retire as a woman at like 30 years old. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad that uh, you did not retire at 30. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me too. It's a good transition into like, how do you define recovery? And particularly in this world that is so incredibly fat phobic and harmful and full of diet culture. Like, what does that mean to you? And, And what is that daily active practice? Yeah, I mean, I think recovery is the word that comes to mind immediately is spaciousness. It's a spacious process that, like, you can certainly push it along, like, by doing the tools that we know, right? Like, setting boundaries, checking in with yourself, having people who support you, you know, the things that we all know. So certainly you you can hasten the process a little bit or, like, keep those growth points coming. But on the other hand, it's also a process that you can't control, Uh, fully. And I would say like, you know, it's a corporeal and a spiritual process that has its own timeline. And I think accepting the timeline of your recovery is part of body acceptance. It's part of self-love, right? And I think, you know, for me, it's like understanding that like recovery, I think like at the very beginning was a lot of beefing up on the literature, understanding the issue. What is fat phobia? What is diet culture? What has happened to me? I'm so pissed off. Mm. Um, so that first awareness when you're like something extremely unjust has happened to me and I am really angry. Um, and I think that some people really want to push through or not bypass that anger phase. It's so uncomfortable to be angry. Um, at least, again, I think especially when you're a socialized female, but I think obviously the other thing is like, if you're a sort of socialized male, like that idea that anger is sort of scary or violent, it's really threatening too. But anyway, so I think for me, it started there. And then, you know, it very quickly moved into action, right? Like, how can I, and again, I'm still in the anger phase, but I'm starting to do the things like I'm setting the boundaries. I am protecting. And I think boundaries, I really love Like, if you think about boundaries as a visual metaphor, it really is like putting up the fence one post at a time around your mental and physical health, right? Like, and the people and the things that are harming it. It's kind of like, you know, really, really going in and doing that work of sort of staking out what are the boundaries? Like, what? where is the fence around me? Who do I want in it? Who do I need to keep outside of it? All of those things. So that, I mean, the logistical part of it was very quickly thereafter. So the boundaries, the like, you know, learning how to date again, right? Now that I'm like, and, and it really included like, for example, like one of the, one of my newest um, rules right after I started sort of recovery was if you talk about how I eat or my body, it's over. Like it's done, like zero tolerance. And normally it's not like three years in that you're learning this. People <laughs> who have a tendency to do that, they 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 let themselves be known very early on. Oh yeah. First days. <laughs> <Nope. Yeah. laughs> yeah. Did that translate into how they would talk about their own food and body? I mean, I didn't tell them the rule, right? So I think like I ended up getting once that rule was in place. It just, it was almost like A, I was sort of vetting, but B, there, I mean, and I feel like you've probably heard this before. There's something energetically that happens where like fewer of those people just come into your orbit. Yes. 
And the other thing is like, not only I extended that rule to be like, and they can't talk about how other people eat or how they look either. Yeah. Because, and so I just found that once that rule in place, it is actually extraordinary how powerful that rule is and how quickly that will get people who are going to trigger you and not be on board with you, like out of your life, out of your dating circle so quickly. Um, It was really shocking to kind of see how quickly the dating pool shifted after that. I think it's actually one of the best gifts of recovery is you like learn how to attract that energetic force. And then, yeah, it is easier when you build this like like-minded community of people who think like you and reinforce the same values. So I love that. Yes, 100%, 100%. So yeah, so like there's kind of like the, yeah, the action, the sort of creating safety, then empowering myself to defend my body in the face of fat phobia, whether it's in a medical environment by learning how to like write a script, like a medical self-advocacy script, or it's like I'm talking back to someone who's fat shaming me in public, right? So there's that phase of it where it felt very much about kind of like building up my toolkit and kind of that sort of thing. That's amazing. Hold on, pause there though. Can you give examples of that? Like when you first were like, okay, I'm going to go into a doctor's office, like has your script evolved? Like what was that for? Was it like an awkward first moment? Were you nervous? Like, I just want to like double click on that a little bit for folks. Yeah. Listening. Like, How the fuck do I do that? <laughs> right. Totally. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I learned medical self-advocacy as a feminist first. I learned medical self-advocacy as a fat person second. So I will say like, right, I think, and this is often sometimes when people are in a larger body, they're really almost ashamed to, to advocate for their fat body and their right for their fat body to exist in a medical environment. But it's important to understand that like people of color have to learn how to, women have to learn how to do this. Disabled people have to, if you're, unless you're like a rich, white, straight, able-bodied, cisgender man, you're the only, everyone else has to learn how to medically self-advocate, understanding that this is something that's more of a universal truth than it's, than it isn't. So, you know, I remember being a baby feminist at like age 20, let's call it like 19, 20 years old. And I'm learning about the history of the way the medical field has treated and discredited women from the very beginning, right? Like the medical field emerged through the discreditation of, through the discrediting of midwifery. And it, it went from a, a feminine dominated healing environment to a respectable male dominated industry. So, you know, I'm like gassed up about this as a woman, right? So I learned to medically self-advocate from that perspective and had already kind of gone through like the learning curve of like the first time you do it. And actually for me, I think because I felt like I was defending my body and other women's body, there was like that perception of it being an act of solidarity. It helped me get through the nervousness of the beginning. And I think that I really felt like, again, I was, I had the fire of righteousness that comes with anger. Yeah viewing this all in a social justice light has been incredibly empowering for your own recovery. Yes. And I'm always aware, like even when I'm, for example, to go back to, I want to talk about the medical circle and then kind of go back to a moment where I'm like, talking back to someone who's being a fat phobe in public, but like the medical script, it went from something that I had practiced literally with my girlfriends. Like we would, you know, this was part of our group. And I mean, honestly, I encourage people to do this with their friends. It might seem kind of weird, but it actually, once you get over the initial awkwardness, it's actually very helpful. 
one person plays a resistant doctor or a misogynist doctor, a fat phobic doctor, and the other, and then you play kind of the patient. And I think beefing up on understanding what are my rights as a patient, like I can end the, end the appointment at any time. I can find a new doctor, presuming that's available to me, right? Um, the script itself now, I just have it in like Google Docs and I just send it before I even go to an appointment. I reach out to the doctor, I send them my script and I'm like, can we agree to this before even like our first meeting? And then, and then if we can agree to the terms, then we'll have like a video call and then I might, then I'll go in and have an appointment with them. So it's like very systematic. Yeah. You're like, all right, I'm putting it out there. And like, if you don't agree, then I don't even going to meet you. Like, I love that. (laughs) Oh, totally. Totally. I know that everyone has access to like that kind of relationship to medical care, but I think there's a lot more wiggle room than people realize. There's a lot more room for empowerment and self-advocacy than we realize. I kind of want to, you know, going back to the social justice lens of like, even when I was starting to clap back on people talking, you know, fat shaming me in public, I was always aware. I'm like, this is about paying it forward. The next time this person tries to talk to another fat person, they're going to have that moment where they remember that they were terrified of me and my rage. And they might stop for a second and think, I don't know if I want to go through that again. What if this is one of those empowered fat people and I don't just get get to get away with this? You know what I mean? Um, so there was, I think solidarity and like ima- that imagined solidarity has always been something that has allowed me to do things that are you know, that maybe are a little bit bold, like that has allowed me to do that. I love that. And and there's so much for me to double click here on. I love the idea of practicing with friends. And obviously, I'm a huge believer in the power of community. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking about folks who have like not yet built that community for themselves. Like, was this a community that you found in fat activism? Was this a community that you yourself educated that were sort of friends before? Like, how did you find this incredible community to be able to practice? Um, in my case, it was college. Right? College is such a specific time, and obviously, a lot of us aren't in college anymore. So, like, you know, I, when I think about those initial moments where I'm practicing as a woman, that's in a context of like we're in college, we're all taking a class on like feminism, mm-hmm. and we're doing this work together. So it's an assignment, literally. Like, I'm getting credits to do this with my girlfriends, and I went to a, like a liberal school, so like that kind of thing was um, was available, right? But yeah, as an adult. You know, I think that some of those people, a lot of those people who I met maybe in the conference context, though I want to say like, you know, if you can go to a conference, you can learn to practice those skills with people who are like-minded and then bring them back to your own community. So nowadays, right, like most of my friends are not people I met in college or not people I met at the conference, but they are people who... Like I learned that they were trustworthy and that I really liked them in part because of how it felt in that environment to be able to trust. Do I, do I get that same support from my friends? So I'm a firm believer that you can teach your friends that you can, that your friends are excited to do this stuff with you and that you can trust, like even if someone isn't right, like p- overtly political, that like you can sense their heart. And if their heart is like, I care about you, I care about making a world that's safer for the people I love, then they don't have to have all those bona fides. They just have to be like there with you, you know? Yeah. And talk about the ripple effect of like changing the world. I love that. I love that. Yes. Can you help our listeners to define weight stigma? And I, I love how you talk about sort of the three levels of weight stigma, this 
intrapersonal, interpersonal, and institutional. Like, how do these come into play in eating disorder recovery? So, like, I mean, first of all, right, like the stigma and the fat phobia, right? This is kind of the idea side of it. It's the idea that people in larger bodies and that weight gain are negative are unattractive, are indications of poor health. And then the discrimination side of it is sort of the, I mean, it's almost like the grounded side of it. Like this is the side of it where it's like people in larger bodies are experiencing workplace discrimination or like literally getting barred from getting promoted or getting hired at all because they're in a larger body or are literally, you know, research shows us getting fewer preventive examinations or medical care, right? This is an example of like the the sort of grounded reality of how the idea of fat phobia becomes a lived reality in a person's life. In terms of sort of the discriminate or rather the three-dimensional component of it, or like the way that I always explain it to people is helping them understand that, that this reality, the stigma part of it, it happens on these three levels. So the first is the intrapersonal, how you see yourself, how you think of yourself, whether you're large bodied or not, right? Like, how do you see the possibility of your body getting larger, your body staying the size that it is? Then there's the interpersonal, how people treat you based on your body. And then there's the institutional, which is sort of how easily or not easily can you navigate society in a meaningful way. And this is where you see things like the fashion industry, the medical field, things like whether or not you can fly on an airplane or, or, you know, go on a train without having to think too hard about it, or whether you can go to a restaurant without having to research the seating ahead of time and things like that. So it's really important to understand those three dimensions as I think, especially in the, in light of eating disorder recovery, right? Like I always think it's important for both providers and for, you know, clients or patients to really know, are you interfacing with all three of those dimensions? Are you interfacing? Like, so for example, if you, you may have, like, I always give this example, right? You can have a person who is in a large body who experiences acute institutional and interpersonal um, discrimination or fat phobia, but may actually have very high self-worth and self-esteem. So they have perhaps very low intrapersonal fat phobia. Conversely, you can have somebody who is in a smaller body who doesn't interface really at all with the interpersonal or the institutional, but has extremely high levels of intrapersonal internalized fat phobia. Both of these people are suffering, but how you would work with them, how you would treat them are very different. So I think really it's about the spectrum of like, are we talking about the first intervention or thinking about triage? Are we thinking primarily about how are we giving this person access tools and access hacks versus on the other side of the spectrum? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if the spectrum is exactly the right, the right visual, but like on the other side of it is our primary focus on body image is our primary focus on things like, you know, CBT or whatever. Are we going to go into it from like with this therapeutic lens or is this really primarily an access issue? Mm. Um, So I think those are really helpful as we're navigating these things. And to not presume, for example, that a person in a larger body has really low self-esteem, right? It's, again, fat phobia is so intense. It's like, I mean, I don't know very many people who are unscathed by it, but I actually do know a handful of fat people who are just like, 
my primary problem, I think I'm like the bomb, right? Like I don't have any, I didn't have any childhood experiences where I didn't have adverse childhood experiences around this. And I don't have that trauma with me. I just find it really frustrating that people can't stop talking about my body when I go out of my house. Um, and so I think like not presuming any of those things and asking about those things. Yeah. Do you typically see a pattern in terms of, you know, folks in recovery, like what they're willing to tackle sort of first, second, third, if they do experience all of those levels? Or is it truly like really varied based on the person? You know, I think for a lot of people, it really does. I mean, the person who's unscathed by fat phobia really is the outlier. I find that a lot of times, depending on the size of the person, right? Like usually the primary focus is kind of the the emotional side of it. It really is kind of the intrapersonal because it's just so, right? It's just so deeply, it's like you're suffering. So how do we kind of stop the emotional suffering or, or minimize it as much as possible, as quickly as possible? But I think similar to my experience where I'm doing that work alongside kind of the interpersonal I mean, it's like with the medical self-advocacy, that's interpersonal, but it's also institutional. And like, I think similarly, right, like while I was recovering from fat phobia and learning, starting to recover from fat phobia, I was also learning how, for example, to make clothing that fit in my size or to alter garments. So this is also institutional interface as well. Yeah. And I bet it's helpful, you know, so much of struggling with mental health challenges is this like shame and isolation and feeling like you're the only one. So of course you have to do the interpersonal work. But like we said, it's super helpful to put on this like social justice advocate hat and be like, wait a minute, this is happening to like 80% of people in the US. Like (laughs) this is, this is ridiculous and like get angry. And I think that I'm doing this for a broader purpose than just myself. And I'm really not alone in it can be really helpful and empowering and ultimately end up really helping the intrapersonal side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And to your point, like that really is like the institutional side of it where it's just like, I mean, and some of it, right. Like I think there's, for me, it's like, there's this combination of anger that's about the injustice. And then there's also the anger of just like how, absurd it is actually so for example where it's like the fashion industry refuses to accept that 70 percent basically of u.s women are plus size right so it's like literally befuddling like i'm just like so you're so you're happy to just clothe only 30 percent of the population for and like how does that make sense Not, not only from a human rights or just a basic sort of logic perspective from a business perspective i mean i'm like you know i think there's moments where it's just like this is baffling and it's actually like hurting my brain to, to like wrap my head around the fact that this is how the world's operating right now. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And that's a nice pivot into that area. Can you just help us to understand like, what are your thoughts on where the kind of fashion world is going? Do you think that we've made progress in size inclusivity? What does that even mean? What excites you? What are brands that are doing this really well? And like, where do we still have work to do? Yeah, I mean, I do feel like a, a lot of progress has been made, but like, I, I mean, I kind of, I put, I put that, I have a little like caveat, little asterisk next to that being like, I think what we're seeing, for example, is like when the economy retracts, that investment retracts, right? Like when we're in times of feasting economically and the APR is super low, everyone's like, yay, people of color, yay, fat people, yay, queer yeah. people, right? We're happy to put that money behind it. 
and build brand equity and grow in those markets, which is how like really businesses kind of think of the, these populations. But then when the economy retracts, all of a sudden it's like, JK, thin, white, able-bodied people only. We know that works and we're not going to take any more risks. So like, I think it's important to understand that the economy, unfortunately, for most businesses that really can move the needle in a big way, it's about that retraction and expansion model that we see with, with economics, which is unfortunate. However, I do think like the genie's out of the bottle in some ways, like around the fashion piece. Like, I mean, literally there are moments that I've experienced in just the past seven or eight years with plus size fashion that I never thought I was going to experience. And that really, I think changed me. Like a perfect example is like when the fat kini became a thing, like I think this was seven years ago, literally it was all over the news. And for the first time ever, plus size bikinis were available. And I remember the first time I saw a wall of plus size bikinis, in this case, it was Forever 21. And I just cried. Like, I just never thought that was going to happen. And so I think like, you know, a lot of us have had that moment and many more moments like that. And for people like me, like my closet is now stocked with these things that, you know, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, when I talk to other fat people, we're all like, what if they take it away again? We're all aware of it. Like, I mean, I think there is a scarcity. I mean, I don't know if I call it quite scarcity. It's like, really, it is like, it's not scarcity in the sense that it's not based, it's not based on, it's based on information. It's based on what we've experienced. So I think a lot of us are very holding very tightly to like, I want to be able to, for example, have more of that feeling of like, it's okay to resell it, or it's okay to pass it on, or it's okay if it doesn't work anymore to not mend it 50 times, right? Like, but there's this sense that it's like, okay, maybe I don't need 55 bathing suits, but like, what if I never get an opportunity to buy another one that I love, you know, after this period is over? So I think there is that still that sense of where we're like getting used to being a consumer that is considered when I think about brands and I'm really stoked about where I'm like, whoa, like, like, think like brands that blew my mind because I have so thoroughly accepted, even as a critical feminist person, um, so thoroughly accepted kind of what the fashion industry has given me and us. I'm thinking immediately of a super fit hero. Like one thing they did was they, for they're an athletic wear brand um, and they decided they were going to stop making extra small, small and medium. They were like, this population is already well-served, yeah. you know, who isn't well-served people who are in the five X category, the six X category, the seven X category. So they were like, as a small business, we are not going to go the normal route of saying, well, we're a small business and we, we just can't really expand past three X. They were like, we're a small business and we have limited resources. And this is how we're deciding to allocate them. And yes, this is 70% of the population. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So I mean, I was like, what? Like, I mean, the idea really, like, so for, I mean, for example, the extra small category in particular often doesn't meet sales projections. And yet no one would ever think to stop making extra small. Similarly, like, you know, I, and so it's like, I just kind of, I'm like, with that in mind, right? Like it doesn't make headlines. The extra small customer has not followed through for this company, but it is headlines when the plus size customer hasn't followed through on whatever the company believed that she was supposed to do. That makes headlines. So I was, it was really impressive to just be like, wow, it's possible for you to divest in some things to invest in other things. So like, I just, I, they, they kind of move the needle for me. So I always talk about that whenever I get that question. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, 
want to end with something that is, you know, personal to me right now, but I'm sure is a question that a whole lot of people have and are struggling with, which is how do you help folks who are really just at the beginning of their journey where there's still this tremendous denial, tremendous shame, like not believing that they can be happy and healthy in their bodies just as they are. I mean, you know, I, frankly, I've given a lot of people your book and it's been absolutely life-changing. You know, this one time my friends like looked at the cover, was like, I'm not ready. Like I know, you know, like that level of internalized shame and just feeling so alone in it. Like, how do you start? How do you start with someone like that? And I think particularly for folks who are in small bodies, like how can we be, how can we best show up for the ones we love? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I return to the word of spaciousness. I mean, I think like people, I guess I have to start with the the parentheses, right? Like I think it's important to understand regardless of someone's body size, the stakes are really high especially when you're in a larger body. So it's like, you know, I think that at the very beginning of my activism, I really came down hard, harder on people who were in larger bodies and who didn't want to come into this work. And I really thought, you know, I don't know. I I think I really thought, don't you understand that like liberation is so much better than whatever the culture is offering. And I'm like for, but I think as I've, as I've grown and done this for over 10 years, I'm like for you, Virgie, for your friend, so-and-so, for you, Christina, right? Like for us, that is true. That is not always true for everybody and or, right? Like even if it is true for that person, they never have to get to that point. And I think, you know, I guess, so So I think it's important to understand, right? The stakes, why, why does someone hold on to something that makes them suffer? It's always because of trauma and fear and like these kinds of things, right? Which are very legitimate and that take a lot of time for somebody to work through and they may never work through that. Just kind of putting that out there. But I think, you know, for, I, in general, I would say the environment where you create more, like where you create a welcome, like you throw out the welcome mat for like when you're ready, you know, I think, A, I love this idea of kind of the person who's like, I'm not ready for that. And it's like, that's the boundary, right? It's like, it begins with sort of say, I, I love that, that 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 person was able to kind of know that about themselves, right? But to have that moment where you have to kind of interface with an alternative message is so good. I think similarly around spaciousness, I think about like not mirroring the language and the ideology that either they're putting forward or the culture is putting forward, knowing that with you, that you're not going to throw the ball back. Yeah. Right. Like if they're like, I'm, I'm, I am this, I am that I am all whatever. And you're just not going to throw the ball back. That is an intervention in and of itself, right? That's you setting your, but these are my values. Yeah. These are not about you. These are about me, right? I don't, I'm not going to tolerate this in my own world. I'm not going to throw the ball back. And even, I mean, it's subtle, but it's so powerful. And I think letting that person come to this when they are ready, as you are living in your values, like that, I think is one of the most important things. I love that. So what I'm hearing is respecting the boundary, but just continuing to show up and be there and have this consistent message. And like, it's baby steps and everyone's on their own journey. And of course, having, I think, I think it's so important that we have like 
understanding and yeah, just like this is a really fucking hard society that we live in, especially for people in large bodies. Like this makes so much sense and like it may take time and that's okay. I'm here. I'm consistently here. Yes, totally. I love that. And I have to end with um, just some some joy, which is I know you just led an incredible trip to Italy with other women in large bodies. And I'd love us, I'd love if you could just tell me and the listeners a little bit about the inspiration behind this trip and the importance of building community in this work. Oh, I mean, the trip, I mean, it's so funny, right? Like, I, I, I'm i so excited you asked me this because, like, this trip was not only, right, like, this beautiful experience with, pl- like, plus-size travelers. I realized kind of halfway through the trip that I'm like, oh, my God, this is a redemption journey for me around eating disorder, my eating disorder. So can I say, right, like, at 18 years old, I went to Italy. I did a short-term study abroad. I was there for about three months. It completely changed my life. Like, it really, literally, I came back from Italy basically immediately applied to go to a college that was like a super lefty weirdo revolutionary college ended up going there and was like I'm not on this straight narrow anymore that trip was really meaningful for me in terms of like the trajectory that I'm still on right now and yet I was that trip to me at that time the whole goal of the trip was to not eat anything in order to become thin so that I could return to the United States utterly unrecognizable like very much the classic transformation hollywood story of like i'm not going to eat anything and i'm going to exercise for like three months and then i'm going to become like a thin person i'm going to whatever that whole thing that fantasy of the transformation and then once i you know went anti-diet and decided that i was going to start recovering from fat phobia and from my disordered eating it was Italy became ground zero for what I called my food cemetery. I was like, if there's anything that diet culture has taken from me, it was this. Like I was like, literally, and it was like, it was, you know, I remember at one point we were in like Naples. It was Easter, and they surprised us with like a 15 course meal. And and yeah. when someone's so deep in their eating disorder that like the phrase 15 course. Easter feast is like it's literally like children dying, bloodbath, murder, right? Like it's like so scary <laughs> when you hear like those kinds of beautiful phrases. <laughs> um, and so, so you know, I'm somebody who like I had one bite of every like the first four courses, and then just went to bed, just like left because I was like I I can't I can't even deal with this, you know. And so in recovery it became ground zero. I was like, oh my God, Italy, right? And I remember in my head, it was like, I have these tombstones of all the gorgeous Italian meals, obviously foremost among them, this like 15 course Easter feast or whatever. Um, And so, you know, here I am like 20 years later going to Italy with a group of plus A's people and I don't have the baggage of those rules of the weight loss of any of it. And I'm just eating whatever I want, as much as I want, like as many bowls of spaghetti, as much tiramisu, as many cannolis as I can, right? And like all of the Aperol spritzes, all right, like, and, and, and really like to just realize halfway through the trip that I'm like, oh my God, this is my like hero's journey. This is like, this is like, like my redemption, 
you know, and like not even really knowing that that was what I was doing, but that my body had brought me back to this place. and was like, we're raising the cemetery, we're changing the history, and we're putting in its place this like beautiful thing, you know, um, and you're going to be surrounded by fat people on top of it, right? And it's just, I think like the inspiration for for the trip has, you know, whenever I do trips with plus size people, it's always community building modeling an experience where you can go on vacation, where you people have your back. I think it does embolden people if they're anticipating fat phobia in another country or when they're, when they're traveling. It does embolden them when there's a posse. It does help to have that support. And even if it's happening and you can't do anything about it, it still helps to be like, that sucked, right? And I think, can I just say, I mean, and all of us were really surprised and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't know what happened, but we did not, we did not get fat bashed in Italy at all at any point. So I just, I'm just like, it's kind of mind boggling, right? Like yeah. no one had, we didn't, no one had that moment where somebody's pointing and laughing or like, or someone saying overtly in someone's face, like calling them a name. These were all things that we had prepared for, you know, ahead of time thinking about like, what's going to, what do we want to do if this happens? Right. Even just that planning is something that a lot of fat people have not ever practiced, have not ever been given the space. Like, I mean, now when I try, whether it's with plus size travel, a group, or whether it's with a friend, we always talk ahead of time. What's, what do you want to do if some fat phobia happens? And it's like so powerful to just create space to talk about that. So um, it felt really good to be able to create this environment where there's no food shaming there's no body shaming and also people can kind of like show up and I mean it was it was definitely I feel like my biggest challenge was accessibility around like pace and things like that like there was we I had scaled back the itinerary of walking quite a bit but I think even when we got there it was like more than I expected and some of the group was really fast and I'm a really slow walker I feel like that was the biggest challenge around the accessibility part but like um it was just like this incredible magical experience of like going to the countryside and like having someone serve you a feast and everyone around you is like fat and fat positive and you're playing with lambs and you're eating like you know homemade lasagna <laughs> like you're drinking wine yeah. and and you get and you can talk about things like man my thighs are you know my thighs are chafing or like do you have a I mean this we didn't do any swimming but like on other trips I've done where it's like the the moment where another a fat person can ask if they can borrow a bathing suit this is huge right like because a lot of us never have never had that experience like this kind of camp experience so it was just really special from like a food perspective and like I, my big mantra through the trip because we're going through the Sistine Chapel we're going and seeing like the Colosseum these like gorgeous ancient really truly like feats of art and architecture and I kept thinking like big bodies in beautiful spaces, big bodies in beautiful spaces, right? I was like, because I just feel like when you think about who goes to the Sistine Chapel, who's next to these beautiful places, we're always only ever shown thin people. Um, And so for me, just being like capturing moments where people are in awe looking at like St. Peter's Basilica, right? For example, which is right next to the Sistine Chapel, like that capturing like this, 
Art Nouveau, Rococo, like everything is golden. It's so beautiful. And there's fat people in it. And and there's the point is to highlight them in these spaces, not to erase them. And it was just like, mom- like moment after moment after moment like that. Uh, in the group. Uh, I love that so much. And the joy in your face is just, it's, it's, um, what's the word? <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> yes. And, um, it, you can really just tell. And what a full circle moment, too, both for your own, like, hero's journey. And also, you know, going back to the beginning, that thread of when I said, you know, why, why was fat activism this, like, click that automatically happened? And I think you did say, like, I had been exposed to, fat people living in joy and celebration. And I think that is so critical to like, y- you can't believe it if you don't see it. Right. Yes. Um, so I love that you do that. And I am very hopeful that my loved one will one day baby steps be in the place where she can experience something like that with you. Oh, I love that. Yes. It has been a pleasure having you here, Virgie. I have a couple more quick questions before we wrap up. So finish the following statement with your first thought. Connection is. Oh, I'm going to say life-saving. That's the word that comes to mind. <laughs> That's a good one. Body image is. It is, I don't know, it's part ours and it's part not ours. And like, we have to reconcile, like kind of live with that. Hmm. Diet culture is just hot flaming trash. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. And recovery is. I think like I th- it's not quite choose your own adventure because it's like there is stuff that you can't quite anticipate on your recovery journey. But I think it's like like it's unique. I guess like it's unique and give yourself the space and understand that like the recovery is also part of fighting like like self-accepting, like accepting what your your unique recovery process is going to look like is part of self-acceptance, it's part of body acceptance. I love that. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you? Um, I'm really active on Instagram at Virgie Tovar, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R. Or you can find me on virgitovar.com. And I also am um, a contributor for Forbes.com if you want to go check out my profile there. Uh, but those are the best ways. Thank you so, so much for your time today, Virgie, and for all the incredible work you've put out into the world of being a voice for fat activism and recovery. I so appreciate what you do. Your work has literally helped and saved so, so many lives, and you are making such a difference in this world. Thank you for being you. You're such a light. All that you're doing is incredible. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.